All right, big subject. Uh, I want us to carefully pay attention this morning. I, mean, I don't want to overload you with illustrations. I know we're talking about aromas of discipleship, so that, sh- that should be enough of an illustration. But I'm a nerdy engineer, and I can't avoid the clash of uh, uh, nerdy illustrations. So you know, if you guys are familiar with a circuit breaker, right? You know, that little thing that's in your particular location of your house, it turns on and turns off. But what's at the, at the end of the line there is all kinds of light switches and electrical outlets, etc. That when that switch is turned on, the whole circuit comes to life. And, and outlets can now provide power and impact on whatever you need. And switches that you turn on have an impact in your house. That switch is turned off, that's not going to happen. And of all that we're going to be venturing into when we talk about aroma of discipleship in the local church, I I think humility sits like a circuit breaker for the rest of them. You turn it on and it enables so much else to come to life in us. You turn it off and you're going to have a really hard time experiencing God's grace. Let me start with Michael Reeves has written a book recently called Authentic Ministry. He says, the Puritans, for those of you guys who are... Not historians, we're probably uh, 500 years ago, 400 years ago. The Puritans like to talk about the tincture, right? As a word you use every day, or atmosphere around a minister. This was a wise concern for quality easily missed. They saw that it is not just the minister's abilities and competence that defines his ministry. His character creates a particular atmosphere. And I I say this for all of us are ministers of the gospel and of the life of God. So this is true for all of us. His character creates a particular atmosphere around him that people can detect. Even if they can't quite put their finger on it. Just sort of, that's what aroma is like, right? We've been saying that discipleship in the household of God, discipleship at work in us, it it smells a certain way. It just kind of gives off an aroma. It creates an atmosphere around your life. And we want to be aware of that. You know, we're disciples together, building the kingdom of God together. And so when you walk in Lakeview Christian Center, it, you know, it should smell a certain way. It should be like walking into a flower shop and just fragrance is going off all around us because our lives smell a certain way. So I remember, and these words just reminded me of something the way you can't quite put a finger on it. Uh, a number of years ago, because it was 1997, uh, Peter and I traveled to our first ever Sovereign Grace Conference that was taking place. And uh, we spent a few days. We had never been around folks. We had studied and got some information and resources, been looking at this family of churches for a while. And we went and attended this conference. And, you know, the teaching was just outstanding. The meetings were deeply impacting. Uh, But we got to spend time with a number of folks, with some pastors that were there at this particular conference and just folks that were there. And just as you engage people, it, it was like, and I didn't have this word in mind back then, it was like there was an aroma. You smelled certain things. And I specifically remember the last day we were there, I think the, the conference had just ended, the last session had just ended before we were getting on the plane, even had left the church, I called Gina. And I was just deeply impacted. I think I spent most of the meetings in tears. Um, 
and I, I told her, I said, babe, I, I, wish, I wish I could tell you what exactly I want to bring back to you. The teaching was awesome. I mean, I learned a lot. But it feels like whatever was impacting, I, I would need to put it in a bottle. That's literally what I said. I would need to put it in a bottle and bring it home to you. And recently, Sovereign Grace has been publishing itself more recently. You know, we have a book of church order that explains why we do the things that we do as local churches. There are seven shared values that, that emphasize things that we hold as critical values as a family of churches. This year, matter of fact, this summer, they are going to be publishing seven shared virtues. And it's kind of the aroma category. So all that timing is great. I wanted to talk about aroma. They're publishing these. Here's the seven shared virtues that I think in Sovereign Grace, we want folks to experience this when you are part of a church. And the first one is humility, which we'll talk about today. Joy, gratitude, encouragement, generosity, mutual care, and servanthood. Right? That, that should be what it smells like to be in this place with us, to be in small groups. Those fragrances should be coming off of our lives. That's what we hope. Please forgive me. My voice is in really bad shape. So I'm going to do my best to at least say words that sound right. Now, let me start with this thought. Humility, it's this circuit breaker, right? It's the soil that you plant everything else in and these virtues grow out of it. Wayne Mack has written a book called Humility. A couple of guys have some better thoughts than I could come up with. He says, on one occasion, someone approached Augustine and asked, what's the most important quality in the Christian life? Augustine replied, Humility. Person then asked, well, what's the second most important quality in the Christian life? Again, Augustine replied, humility. The same person asked a third time, what is the third most important quality in the Christian life? And you guessed it, Augustine replied, humility, right? Wayne Mack goes on and he says this, humility is not something we are born with. We are born proud. And because of our sinful hearts, we do not naturally seek after God. Psalm 10 verse 4 teaches, the wicked in, in the haughtiness of his countenance, other translations say the pride of his face, does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Apart from the grace of God in our lives, we all naturally tend to ignore God and exalt ourselves. Now, we get that from the standpoint of there are people in this world who have just don't even give a thought to God. I mean, God's not even in the formula for how do you do life? How do you make it meaningful? What even matters? I mean, God's not even being consulted or even thought of. Why is that? Because pride makes us feel like we don't need anything but me. I can figure this out. I can find my way. I can make life rewarding. I can solve my own problems. I can provide for every need. That pride operates until you and I leave this world and put on different bodies in heaven. And for the Christian who has found his way to Christ and has a relationship with God, it still shows up. Right? Any of us who are sitting here this morning with a neglected prayer life or we just don't get around God very often, we wish we would and we have good intentions, but it's just not happening. What's enabling that in me? Pride. 
There's something in me that's not convinced that I am desperately in need of what only God can be and do to me. And to put that at a distance is to give away the fact that whatever that need is, I think I can get that somewhere else. So I get busy. I'm, I've got a lot of people I connect with because I, I think I've chosen the right people to meet that need. I work extra hard because I think work and talent will bring to me what I need. I'm developing a skill. I'm working on my identity in some category. And all the time, God just keeps getting pushed farther and farther away. Because pride in me says, hey, man, you, know, you don't really need God. Matt goes on and says, what is pride? He said, pride consists in attributing to ourselves and demanding for ourselves. That's a good word. We live in a demanding age. We demand things today. Demanding for ourselves the honor, privileges, prerogatives, rights, and power that are due God alone. Thus, it's the very root and essence of sin because pride at its core is idolatry of self. A proud person has put himself or herself in God's place. Humility, then, it consists in an attitude wherein we recognize our own insignificance and unworthiness before God and attribute to him the supreme honor, praise, prerogatives, rights, privileges, worship, devotion, authority, submission, and obedience that he alone deserves. I've already had somebody ask me why my outline is not more filled with quotes from Andrew Murray. Andrew Murray has written a classic book on humility. As a matter of fact, I don't know if there's any other book outside the Bible that wrecked my life and put it back together as effectively as this book did. Uh, in my 20s, the Lord apparently had had enough of dealing with my pride, and so he decided to give me front row seats to it. And Andrew Murray took me on a tour, and uh, it, was, it was a tour of tears, and it just wrecked me. I, I'm serious. I've never been so wrecked by a revelation of God as I was by being accompanied by this man from about 100 years ago who wrote the book Humility. Uh, he kind of rewired my understanding in a massive way that was so vitally important. He says this, when I look back on my own religious experience or on the church of Christ in the world, I stand amazed at the thought of how little humility is sought after as the distinguishing feature of the discipleship of Jesus. In preaching and living in the daily activities of the home and social life, in the more special fellowship with Christians, in the direction and performance of work for Christ, how much proof there is that humility is not esteemed the cardinal virtue, is not considered the only root from which the graces can grow and the one indispensable condition of true fellowship with Jesus. If humility is a circuit breaker, it can turn on power that will travel into your marriage, into your friendships, into every relationship category of your life, into your workspace, into your dealing with strangers, into your fellowship with one another. Just once that switch gets on, it transfers so much grace into our lives. So let me, let me put humility in a particular category this morning. There was so much I think we could have gone after. I'm going to try and simply do this one thing. All right, first in your outline, I wrote out pride 
requires a misinformed understanding of self and the grand scheme of creation. It requires that. For you and I to have pride flourishing in us, it requires that I don't have an accurate understanding of myself, nor do I understand the big picture of everything that exists and why it exists. Right? You could go back and visit a description of the devil who is the author of pride and the one who offers it to human beings in the Garden of Eden. The devil, if you don't know the devil's history, it's an interesting thing to read. If you read Isaiah chapter 14, you'll find a description of a being there that suits the devil himself. But he didn't always have a bad resume. He was like the crown jewel of God's creation of angels. He was an angelic being. He was beautiful. He was unique. He was a cause for you to stare at that being and then to look to God and say, you did that. That's your handiwork. That's your artistry and your power and your creativity. Well, that was the purpose of God in creating the devil. But the devil looked at himself and said, I'm pretty impressive. Matter of fact, I compare so well to everything else around me. I, I don't know that I can find another angel who's as sharp as I am and amazing as I am, as powerful as I am. And, and once that self-awareness got detached from God awareness, his heart's agenda for life now became all about him and no longer about the glory of God. And he became an evangelist for that. He shows up in the garden and he offers Eve and Adam the same thing. Hey, why don't, you, why don't you put God at a little bit more of a distance? Yeah, oh, God has said this, but if you'll eat of this tree, it's going to open your eyes and you are going to live at another level. You, 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 you can so benefit from this. All right, this is what pride does. Humility, on the other hand, in its simplest function, simply puts things in their proper place. In God's plan, the devil was supposed to fit somewhere. In God's plan, Adam and Eve were supposed to fit somewhere. So it's not as though God's overlooking this. They're supposed to fit somewhere, but there's a bigger scheme of things, right? And listen to this. Hebrews chapter 1 starts engaging the question about man this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through him also, he created the world, right? So this, this is where you and I find some sense of guidance in our created existence. At some point, and, and maybe you got to ask yourself this question, how often do you reference the fact that you are a created being? How often does that thought just come to mind to you? When you, when you go to do life, you're trying to figure out who you're going to be, what goals you want to have, and how you want people to respond to you, not respond to you, where you want to invest yourself. How often do you just stop and first recognize, I'm, I'm a creature? Because you know what that does to you, right? If you start there, your next awareness is the creator, isn't it? You start with the creator then. So you don't venture into creation without being guided there by the creator massive mistake if you and i are doing life this morning and 
We're not having our hands held by the creator. I can almost guarantee we're in the wrong place. And we think everything exists for the wrong reasons. We need the creator to hold our hand. This is what Hebrews does. He, the one who created the world, he is the radiance of the glory of God, right? So there's something out there called the glory of God. And he's the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. You guys have seen the, the, the latest uh, telescope that just got launched in the space. And these images that are coming from the far reaches and they, they, they still can't find the edges of anything, right? Uh, can you recognize, I, I don't know, you know, it, it takes more power to run the city of New Orleans electrically than I can understand. This is reaching way out there, isn't it? And there's all kinds of management going on of every planet and star and molecule. It's all being managed. And who's managing that? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And you, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. But you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. Wait, can you get this picture? This is an explanation of staring into this telescope and then taking God into account and saying, that's all like a t-shirt that you roll up at the end of the day and toss it into the, the hamper. All of that, as far as that telescope can see, is like a t-shirt to God. That's pretty big, isn't it? But yet to God, he could just roll it up, throw it in the hamper the way you and I do at the end of the day. Well, in your outline, humility begins by painting an accurate picture of the transcendent, exalted, omnipotent, holy God who is the source of all, and he is greater than all. And then shortly after this presentation of God, we come to this question in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6. What is man that you are mindful of him? Trying to figure yourself out? Who you are? Your life is meaningful? You didn't get to do this. You got to do that instead. Somebody else on Instagram's got a much better deal going than you do. Who are you? Have you tried to answer that question in chapter two without starting in chapter one? Because trying to answer that without a God in the equation is torturous. It is torturous. You're going to answer out of comparisons in competition, you'll answer out of pride, right? You'll answer by starting with yourself and then trying to figure out why everybody else exists. And, and by the way, I know all of you just exist for me. I already know that. So can you get in line? Can you make sure and do all the things that I would value and all the ways that I, and on a timetable that would make sense for me? And can the advantages come to me a certain way so that my life can take on certain characteristics? Because pride says, I'm starting with me. But God says, no, you need to start with me. Right. Romans chapter 9 is an interesting 
moment, God is being presented in his greatness theologically. And in verse 20, it says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? All right, so when you go to figure out your own existence, do you think of yourself as clay in the hands of a potter? Do you think of yourself as as creation in the hands of a creator? And so everything that makes its way onto the landscape of what God is doing has a purpose to it. Every Because it didn't get there by accident. There's nothing about your life that's an accident. You are not in a place that accidentally happened. You are not a person who accidentally is. The creator created. Which means everything about your life has already been thought through by him. And he picked you up the same way a... a potter would pick up clay and before he does it he's got something in mind he's beginning to mold and shape something and the shock in this question is like wait wait who are you old man who answers back to god right the shock is there is a creator and obviously he has the right to do with his creation what he wants all right this is the birthplace of humility if, if we don't start here you can't arrive in a place that's humble. And God has purposes, right? Both corrective purposes and inspiring purposes in our lives. God has to correct something or our pride would turn into the same thing the devil did and what Adam and Eve did in the garden. It would cave in on ourselves and we would redirect everything about our lives based on the tree of knowledge, based on our own ideas. But God comes along and says, but I've got a purpose for you. Let me correct that. And then God has a purpose for you that may not be the easiest next step for you. You guys know God may be calling you to something that's really hard. And if you have a little bitty God who's at a great, great distance and you have a big, big self full of pride, at some point you will run out of gas for whatever it is that's great that you need to do next. You will come in touch with the reality that I can't do this. I'm not good enough. I'm not talented enough. I can't, I can't hang with this long. This is too hard. Right? There's this amazing moment. I'll read this one more passage here. Isaiah chapter 40 is this amazing moment in, in the book of Isaiah. By the time you get to Isaiah chapter 40, there have been 39 chapters of judgment on nations, on the people of Israel. There's been this narration that my people have been going astray for a couple of hundred years They've just been going astray, going astray, going astray. And all the nations around them are leading them into corruption and idolatry. So God steps into that. And for 39 chapters, he judges how bad they're doing. There's a lot of correction taking place in these 39 chapters. But God also has a purpose for them. And at this point, rightly so, they've lost all sense of confidence. And how do we move in that purpose? Well, here's how God fixes that. He says, go on up to a high mountain. O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, said to the cities of Judah. Behold your God. In verse 12, this is what you're beholding. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. And he marked off 
the heavens with a span. So whatever this telescope is chasing, God owns a measuring device that he can put it in that measuring device and measure it from here to here. I lost my place. Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure. (laughs) All right, this is meaningful for me because I have a giant pile of sand in my front yard that's been slowly being relocated to the backyard. It's just one pile of sand, right? And it's intimidating to me. And I had to ask for help and had to reach beyond myself to move a pile of sand. God takes all the dust of the earth and he's got a cup he sticks it in. And he weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance, right? God apparently has some different equipment that he uses than most of us do. He's putting mountains into scales. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, right? Who came up with this idea that there's a right way and there's a wrong way? Who thought of that? You and I just assume it exists. It came from God. Who taught him knowledge, all that there is to know? Did God, somebody sit down with God and say, look, get your notebook out. You don't know a lot of stuff. I'm going to help you. And he showed him the way of understanding. And he goes back to this size issue. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. I watch the news at night, right? There's all kinds of issues. There's Russia and Ukraine and China and God says, yeah, that's like, that's like a bucket and just taking it and just tipping it over for a second and going, Bloop. there they all are. Bloop. Every one of them, even the ones you didn't name, Bloop. there they are. A drop in a bucket and they are accounted as the dust on the scales. Not even something being weighed. This is the dust on the scales that's weighing something else. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel. If you burned every tree in Lebanon, it wouldn't be enough of an offering, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Isaiah, you're running out of words here. All right, because he just installed scale and everything just kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller until he gets to the point where he's saying, you know, it's like everything that God created. It's like nothing. Well, no, actually, it's like less than nothing. I mean, I don't know where he's going next. He's running out of size. Everything just keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller. But it does so only as God gets more accurately and more accurately seen. So here's what's really interesting about this moment. As I said, this this was a tough moment for Isaiah, for the people of God. And Isaiah starts this chapter, chapter 40, by by saying, comfort, comfort my people. He says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Say to them, your war has ended and your iniquities are pardoned. This is God showing up and then he says, okay, now let me pull my resume out because I've got something for you beyond the 200 years of neglecting me. I've got something for you beyond the judgment that I just unpacked for all the nations around you and you as well. I've got something for you. It's time to move on. And he pulls out his own resume. He doesn't pull out their resume. He pulls out his own resume. 
Listen, what kind of news is this for some of us who are stuck this morning? We're, we're just in a place where we've been for too long. Maybe it's, it's been decades. Maybe your walk with God, maybe relationships have just fallen apart. Maybe you're in a place where you're desperate to think, could things ever be different? Maybe there's an enslaving sin that just shows up and the background noise of guilt is just always there. You're sitting in this meeting this morning and a song was sung. In the back of your mind, you felt like a hypocrite because your life doesn't bear witness that you actually believe what you were singing. And you felt that. And you feel like you're stuck. That's exactly who was being spoken to in Isaiah chapter 40. And God shows up in that moment. See, this, this is where we humble ourselves before God, not by focusing on ourselves. You can't humble yourself by focusing. That's what pride does. Pride invents the focus on ourselves. We humble ourselves when God takes on scale. When God gets to be a certain size, that's when we humble ourselves. All right, so one last thought here, and I'll try and move through this quick. Humility puts us in our place. Then, then it informs our relationships with each other. So this is why we smell a certain way together. Because this presentation of God that puts us in a place of humility before him, it also puts us in a place of humility with one another. This this should be filled with humble exchanges with each other as we walk husbands and wives, as we walk as family members, as we have extended friendships, as we walk with the church, it should smell a certain way. Now, let me just say this for Lakeview Christian Center in particular, and for every church that theologically, theologically would be in agreement with what we call reformed theology, right? People who get around reformed theology, and I'm not going to unpack the, that, it'd be taking me too long, but... Um, the theology of the reformers were capturing an emphasis that's in scripture. It, it's what I, I use this phrase a lot. It's, it's what I would call a God-centered emphasis. It is the idea, and I wrote this in your outline. I'm just going to read it so I don't have to spend much time on it. But I know it'll generate questions and you're welcome to come ask. Right? God-centered theology, it begins its understandings of the universe, of history, of right and wrong, of good, etc. With the creator. It seeks and protects his glory above all others. That's what God-centered theology does. It does not ignore man, but it does not make God and creation and events and morals and right or wrong first answer to man. And we have a massive problem with this in our day. Can I just tell you in the theological world, if these words have come out of your mouth, I'm going to, I'm going to, this is going to be a lightning for some of you. When life gets hard and circumstances get hard to understand and things go sideways and, and you have to come up with an explanation for that. If what's come out of your mouth to describe the functioning of the universe has been, well, you know, man has a free will. If that's come out of your mouth, can you pull on that string a little bit? Because what you just installed was the idea that God's going to have to respond to that. Because man has this free will thing. And so ultimately, whatever's happening in our universe, in your life, in the future, is answering to that. 
Because man can choose and man cannot choose. Well, let me just pull you into the realm of mystery. Our choices are real in the Bible. They're real choices. But if you start with man, you're going to have God sitting in the bleachers somewhere at some point. And if you unpack that for the rest of your life, you're going to be wondering, so how do you explain the mess you're in right now? Well, I had a free will. Wow. That offers you a lot of hope, doesn't it? Because what are you going to do next with your free will? Well, probably something stupid again. <laughs> and so how are you going to get out of this spiral of meaningless, I mean, hey, your life, it could have been something else. It's this instead. So you get to play for the booby prize for the rest of your life because you use your free will to do something not important, secondary, etc., etc. Now, try and interpret Romans 8 through that lens. But if you start with a creator who is sovereignly ruling over everything in his universe, and you start there, and you say, this God will never face a day where you and I exercise our will, and he goes, oh, oh man. That's the one thing I hoped he wouldn't do. Can, can you guys come help me out real quick? Let's talk about, I mean, Keith, he is in the weeds now. I, don't, I did not expect him to do that. If that's your idea of God ever responding to his creation, that's not how God sounds in Scripture. To be God-centered is to start with God reigning over his creation. To be absolutely sure that every promise he makes actually does come true in the end. Because he's got the power. He's not submitting his universe to your will or mine. Does that mean my will doesn't matter? No, it matters. And the Bible treats it like it matters. So stay in your lane. Treat your decisions like they matter. But do not, do not depromote God because you're trying to explain the significance of your own actions. Don't do that. The Bible lets it just be awkward. Your actions matter, but God is never in question. And his outcome is always certain. And you and I have hope to believe that he will accomplish everything he has promised in this world. That's the God of Scripture. So you and I come into this humility, right? Humility informs, and race through some of this, humility informs our sense of purpose and meaningfulness. When I read the Bible, the Bible says God created all things for his glory. All things are for his glory. Now, we also know God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So it'd be accurate for us to recognize God causes all things to work for our good. They ultimately are for his glory. All right. Can you recognize these two things are going to pull on each other? That you could be in a moment where you're staring at something, you're saying, you know, I don't see how this is good. And I'm with you. I mean, sometimes you guys come with situations and problems. All I can do is cry with you. Because this is just painful and difficult and hard. But there's another thing at work in that moment. It doesn't make this not awkward, difficult, challenging. But God does all things for his glory. All things. God does the hard things in our lives for his glory. God does the slow things in our lives. God does the painful things in our lives. God does the confusing things in our lives for his glory. That's got to be my first interest. 
that this glorious God who created everything with a purpose is in my life bringing glory to his name, maybe by delaying something, maybe by rerouting something, maybe by calling me to walk by faith in an area that's really, really hard and challenging. Next thought there, humility informs our salvation and our status as God's people. It, it comes with a no boasting clause. And this is a key ingredient to humility among us. How did, how did you get here? How did you become a Christian? What was going on behind the scenes? Hey, you're here. I mean, I'm aware of this. I grew up, and my family members, I grew up with a family that, you know, for most of their lives were not Christians. I was. How did that happen? Right, theologically, right? I put a little note in your outline there. God's act of salvation is the insistence of God putting his mercy on display. Because none of us deserve to be saved at the expense of his son. None have earned or merited or motivated God to save us. None are willing or able to turn to God without him. We are so damaged by sin that we would cave in on pride and we would make our lives about ourselves up to the very end. And if at any moment we pondered the thought of turning to God in repentance and faith, that came from somewhere outside of us. Whatever your theological pool is that you drink from, you didn't come up with that on your own. And the fact that you acted upon it at the end of the day, you will not stick your chest out and say, hey, God made me an offer. I negotiated for a second and I took it. Yeah, I took it. Let me just say it this way. If your understanding of salvation causes you to nod your head rather than scratch your head, you don't understand biblical salvation. The way the Bible presents salvation, right? It's in verses like Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this, let me make sure you install this asterisk right here. And this, not your own doing. Don't be looking to take any credit here. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why do you say that? Well, so that no man may boast. So that when you're done saying... I'm saved, you'd be scratching your head saying, and why me? Why did God graciously do that for me? Scratching my head. I'm not like, well, I was smarter than my dumb relatives. I mean, God came along. I read some stuff in the Bible. It was just clear. Come on, idiot. I mean, believe in God, trust him. It's like the second this becomes about anything that you and I do, the boasting clause goes out the window. If there's something about me that's a little bit different than you, my pride's going to exploit that every day of the week. And I will make sure in conversation and me working cleverly that in, that somehow I got something going on because of me. That's what pride wants to do. And it'll show up in here. Listen, if your theology, this is what Reformed theology does, it puts a bunch of head scratchers in the same room with each other. You don't walk around going, what are you doing here? Your first thought is, what am I doing here? How did this grace come to me? Why? Why? I provided God nothing. 
Not a moment. He was not inspired. He didn't come to me and say, hey, Keith, I'm just like, come on, man, motivate me, man. Give me something. Give me something to work with. It doesn't have to be much, just a little bit. That's not how the Bible presents salvation. Because if I could present a little bit, you understand, I'd build a whole city in my name after that. And I would boast and boast and boast. And God says, no, I designed something that at the end of the day, you won't have anything to boast about. Your salvation will be my doing and mine alone, right? Romans 11 so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. You, how are you chosen to be in God's kingdom? By grace. But, but if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of work, something that you bring to the party. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And then Romans 3, this is a, it's a little long, but hang with me here for a second. He says, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, about the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So when you and I get in the same conversation, he is glorious and all of us have fallen short. We are not. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a total satisfaction before God by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Why did God save us this way? So that God could put on display his righteousness. And there would never be a moment where we're kind of saying, yeah, God, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of your righteousness right now, but I've seen a little bit of Keith's, not too bad. Uh, a little bit of this guy over here, a lot of that guy, look how special he is. No, so that God could put his righteousness on display. Because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Hmm. Head scratcher, isn't it? So how'd you get here? All right, let me just run the one last thought here. When we go to do life with each other, the Bible then calls us into this place of humility with one another. It sits us in the presence of God. We get a sense of scale, the enormity of God and the smallness of us. And then we do life with one another. And it informs the way we treat one another. It informs the aroma that comes off of our lives. It informs whether we have a superior presentation, whether we have a competitive presentation. You find yourself competing with other Christians. You know, you're sitting around small group, somebody's sharing about their devotional life, and you kind of feel like, ooh, I'm going to need to share from last year's setting because, well, they're really spot on. And I haven't even read my Bible in a month or two. I don't even know where it is. Um, so you're going to reach back. Why? Because I'm, I'm trying to compete. I'm trying to make sure that somehow hey, I, I'm, I got some game too, right? Uh, or uh, God forbid that we ever compete with one another as parents. I know that never happens. So, you know, hey, this child's misbehaving. My child's doing this. This one's accomplished that. Well, mine's done this. And next thing you know, we just, we want to put our godliness. Our righteousness is looking for a venue to go on display 
among the people of God. This, this, by the way, when this starts to happen, this place starts to have a different kind of aroma. It's, it starts to smell like a toxic garbage dump. And people walk in, and you know, like you walk in and you put your guard up. You walk in and you're very busy in your mind. You know, you know, humility lets you kind of lower your guard a bit because you know the people around you are scratching their head right along with you. They're wondering why they're here too. And so when you show up with a, with a weak resume in some category of your life, you're not hyper aware of that. It's like, oh my gosh, I got to make sure I make a presentation here. And this totally changes the way being a part of a church feels. I think you guys all could agree. Let me pick the biggest guy. No, uh, Shaquille O'Neal, I think, is the biggest human being that, that I, could, I could put a thought on. He's just, he's just not big this way. He's just big everywhere. His head is big, hands, everything about this man is massive. If he were standing on the platform right here, I, I think I could pat him on the top of the head by doing something like that. That's how tall he is. So if, if he and I were standing, I would get a neck injury looking up in his face, just he and I having a conversation right now, right? Because he's big. He's big. But there are other things big. Right? If I were to take Shaquille, as big as he is, and you move him over here and stand him next to some other thing in creation, how about something even man-made? How about the Empire State Building? All of a sudden, Shaquille gets like this, and the Empire State Building, you can still see him, he's still there, but he's not much. He's no longer very impressive in the big category. And then if you pick him up and you set him next to Mount Everest, uh, he would become like the dust on the scales. He'd be less than nothing. You couldn't even find him anymore, right? He would be so small and so insignificant, and your mind would be blown because you'd stop and you'd say, wait, wait, the God over this creation, he weighs that mountain in his kitchen scales. And Mr. Big Boy, who's very impressive, you can't even see him next to God. How many guys can humbly recognize some of us think we're Shaquille O'Neal in certain categories? Husbands and wives, would you like to point out to each other who's Shaquille O'Neal in their mind in certain categories? Some of us think we're Shaquille O'Neal in certain ways that we do things, certain spirituality, certain approaches to our lives, certain patterns in our lives. And, and we, you know, we just got this thing about us. You know, we got it going on. And, and we get around people who don't have it going on. It's really hard to kind of figure out how to relate to them. We kind of, kind of give off this aroma. It's an aroma that feels like looking down our nose in some form of judgment and you don't quite measure up, etc. And you got your categories, right? You're Shaquille O'Neal in this category. And, and there's a bunch of people who don't care about that category. You're really, really big in a category that a lot of people don't care about. So, I don't know. Go find a league to play in, but... It doesn't matter that you can dunk like a, a wild animal. It doesn't matter because that person doesn't care. They're not impressed. But some people are, right? So you go hang around those people and they're really impressed with how tall you are. And you're big. You're big in your category. But when we come together, the God who puts mountains in scales is in the room with us. And suddenly, none of us are very impressive. None of us. If Shaquille stands next to me, he's big. He is. And, you know, you could stand next to me in some categories of your life and, and you'd, be a, you'd be huge. But humility comes from pulling God into the conversation. It comes from seeing the scale of God, which means the opposite of that. Pride comes when God gets at a distance from us. 
right? When God is near, he's off the scales. When God gets farther and farther away from us, when I haven't meditated, had my mind renewed, stared at God, listened to Isaiah speak to me in Isaiah chapter 40, I, I get a God who's like this big. And whenever God gets this big, there's something about me that just takes off and gets really big. Let me just pick on one thing before we pray. Eric, you can come back up here. <laughs> that, that's, that's not how I used to say it. I, hey, bro. That's what I used to say. Hey, bro, come on back up, Eric. Something like that. <laughs> All right. This, this is where humility has fallen off the table in our culture. How many guys have noticed, maybe hard to find an example of, how many guys have noticed how outraged people are? Have you noticed? Outraged. All right, if we would like to do a lab experiment and put that in a Petri dish and separate the molecules of outrage, I'd be hard-pressed to find the person who's really outraged isn't flowing in self-righteousness. I'd be really hard-pressed to discover, wow, no sense of self-righteousness. Because when you're outraged, there has this, what the, what kind of idiot? Are you kidding me? Did you hear? And every one of those statements is shielding yourself from you. I mean, have you come in touch with the idea? I mean, just get close to God. And whatever category I think I'm so big in, I will find out I'm not very impressive. I'm outraged over this person. Listen, husbands and wives, you ever get outraged over your husband and your wife? Outraged. This is the hundredth time they did this. You don't understand. All right, well, build it out for me. He did this. and It's, it's big. It's big, Keith. It's big. Well, can I just build out your stuff for a moment and then, you know, and then we'll set you next to God and, and all of a sudden you'll realize, yeah, it feels big, but my issues, my issues, ah, small, I am small before God. But if God is too far removed from us, how many of you guys have thought this? You are, your marriage is struggling because your God is too small. If, and, I, and I'm going to stick by this because I'm a nerdy engineer, if humility is a circuit breaker that turns on other things, it could be that your marriage is not very empowered because the humility breaker is off. You're just not very humble. You're hard to live with because you just don't see yourself in a way that when you approach the person you're married to, you begin with a self-awareness. And not so much of a them awareness. That outrage piece starts with you. Are you outraged over you or just Joe Biden? <laughs> well, let's not go down that road. All right. Let me read this last thought to us and we're going to pray for you. When Max says, a truly humble person has an abiding sense of his natural insignificance as compared to God. 
Abraham exhibited this attitude when he said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Abraham was deeply aware of the incredible insignificance of his knowledge and understanding compared to the wisdom of God. Humble people have a great sense of their ignorance, their weakness, and their unimportance. They know that if the nations are like a drop from a bucket in God's eyes, then they are far, far less than that. They recognize the insufficiency of their own power. They understand that only, that only God is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, all-wise, full of grace and truth and righteousness. They realize they are totally dependent on God for everything, wisdom, health, safety, and even the ability to obey. In fact, it is only by God's grace that we can even do anything that pleases him. Let's stand up together. Lord, there are moments when you reach deep into our lives and you just adjust some things in us. Sometimes those are crushing moments. Sometimes they are painful moments. Oh, but they are needed moments. Lord, as Andrew Murray pointed out, it can be possible that Christians, any one of us, may have so deprioritized the value and preeminence of humility that we have stopped seeking after that. And when that occurs, Lord, we run the danger of trying to do life and our pride is so much more of a steering influence than we ever thought it could be. Lord, if I could pray something for my own soul, if I could pray something for our church as a collected presence of your work on this earth, if I could pray something for husbands and wives in this room, if I could pray something for parents and their children, Lord, for relationships that have become conflicted, at odds with one another and distant, Lord, we would humble ourselves and ask, by your grace, Lord, would you flip the humility switch for us? Lord, would you awaken something in us where the longing of our heart sounds like, Lord, not to us, not to us. But to your name, Lord, bring glory because we see how much worthy your name is, not ours. We see how great you are and we want everybody else to notice, Lord. We, we want to get out of the big business. We are dust on the scales. Who is man that you are mindful of him? Lord, you are more than just a little bit mindful of us. You came to rescue us. You came after us. You came to bring a love into our lives that we never, ever would have tasted. You came to turn our hearts to you and we never, ever would have turned. So, Lord, you're not just mindful of us. You're coming after us. And that's our great hope. 
that's the hope of every person in this room today. Not that they might find their way out of their mess. Not that they might finally become self-determined. Not that they might take a step because they've got it together and they've read the right book and they've gone to the right counselor. Although maybe we should do all those things to seek help. But God, their hope is that you have come after them. And at the end of the day, we're not going to be boasting in what we did. God, we're going to be boasting in the mercy and the grace of God that ran us down and found us and insisted on doing good to us. So, Father, this morning, this is not enough time for humility to find its way into our lives. But, Lord, would you at least open our hearts this morning to an awareness that maybe we've been doing a lot of life with the circuit breaker off. And there's a lack of power and we're struggling to be reconciled. We're outraged often. We have a high opinion of ourselves and a low opinion of a lot of other people. Lord, flip the switch by your grace. In this church, Lord, may people come into this place for the first time and they just smell something. They just, maybe they just can't put a finger on it. Maybe after they're here for a few times, they start to realize that's, that's the fragrance of humility. These people are just humble people. That's our prayer. That's our longing. Make us to smell like humility. In Jesus' name, amen. Eric, I cannot let you leave without leading us one more time. So, so take it away. created to long after you to cry out and worship to you Of my mind, bow. 
reminder of our true essence Lord we, we are created beings and it is our our only real mission in life to give you glory Lord that's all we're, we've been created for Lord and if we get that right if we if we rest in that responsibility and role that you've given to us uh, Lord like we've heard from your word all, all good things will come in place everything will work out in the end because we are submitted to our creator uh, Lord, so more of you, less of us. Lord, would you help us to give you all glory, all honor. And I, I pray that for this week in particular, Lord, as, as we go back out into the workplace, we go back out into our relationships with one another, as we go back out into our families, God, would, would, you, would you make a tangible difference in our lives this week? Would we see uh, opportunities to be humbled by you, to remain humbled in your sight? 
uh, Lord, in, in ways that we can, can truly and, and tangibly give you glory. We ask for this in your name and by your power. Amen. Amen.